ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? Mm. No. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Pod and the Pendulum. So we are coming at you with a what we think is a really unique and fun idea for covering horror movies. We love franchise horror. We love those movies with anywhere from 3 to 30 entries in them that seem to go on and on and on forever. And every episode, we are going to cover an installment, or maybe sometimes two installments, in just about every single horror movie franchise under the sun. So whether it's Friday the 13th, Halloween, or even the Leprechaun movies, we are going to be there to talk about it. I am one of your hosts, Mike Snoonian, and I am joined by... Jerry Smith. How's it going, everyone? And Jerry, where can people find you? I should have told that. Uh, various things. I uh, used to be the editor-in-chief of Icons of Fright. Uh, I used to write for Fangoria, Blumhouse.com. Uh, these days, I primarily write for Scream Magazine, uh, Ghastly Grinning, and uh, Phantasm Media. Hey, Jerry, I'm always kind of curious because I've done websites forever. What do you think like the biggest benefits of writing for print over online are and vice versa? Uh, you know, I love writing online. It, it's fun and it allows me to get a little, maybe a little more personal than I would with the print stuff. But uh, the transition was it was a good one. Uh, you know, I was with Icons of Fright, and then Rebecca McKendry, uh, you know, gave me a chance to write for Fangoria and and that, that kind of stuff. I prefer print just because uh, it kind of forces me to be a little more analytical in my approach. But uh, I think both are fun. Yeah, so when you're writing for print, you can actually maybe go a lot deeper when you're talking about the movies and you're not worried about, you know, is this going to just give me the most clicks right now? And, oh, here's a piece of news I have to get up today because it's got to be some sort of exclusive. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, that in print, uh, you know, you don't have to deal with a lot of, you know, oh, here's a new movie trailer or, you know, here's here's a list. Like, yeah, I, I right, yeah, here's, here's a poster and, like, every single site has that same poster, so... Right. Here's an exclusive um, movie poster with one quarter of an inch of a poster that is going to be exclusive for like all of 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is what Jerry and I are here to do uh, with every episode. So both of us love horror movies and both of us love those long running franchises. Um, Like we said, everything from Halloween to Friday the 13th to what we're going to talk about in a little bit later tonight. Um, and I kind of have been kicking around this idea for a long time, and I'm really excited to have Jerry uh, jump in and join for this, where we are going to be trying to go really in-depth with what makes these movies work, and in some cases, mm-hmm. like, what doesn't make these movies work overall. Uh, but we also want to make this, like, a really interactive thing as well. So we are going to bring on other horror fans who absolutely <laughs> love these movies uh, and will defend some really bad ones to the death. So we feel like this is going to be a lot of fun, and from the people that we've kind of reached out to, there seems to be some like real enthusiasm for it. Um, people are like, we should cover this, you know, don't forget about these movies. And um, so far, we have come up with like this giant list of movies that has just about everything under the sun. But I know that we have definitely forgotten things too. Yeah, yeah. I looked at the the uh, the list that we came up with earlier, and I. I... 
saw that we didn't put Joy right on there, and uh, I will, I will, I will fight, fight till my death defending Joy Ride Three. So I'm excited. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That is going to be on there as well. I think we left out like the house movies. Oh, yeah. So we definitely want to cover That's that. That's right. So that is something we're going to cover, and I'm sure people will make us aware of what we've missed. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing our fans like to do, help us out. All right, Jerry, why don't you tell our listeners what we are going to be covering for our first batch? The first franchise that we are going to tackle uh, is the Scream the Scream franchise, one that is very popular with uh, 99% of the horror community. And who is part of that 1%? <laughs> That's me, guys. I don't think I stand for a whole 1%, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely in the minority of, of not caring, about, caring for it. Hello? Hello? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big breasted girl who can't act. She's always running up the stairs and she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules. That one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. You do not make the rules. The police are always on track. If they watch Palm Night and save time. He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. Everybody's a suspect! Not scared, are you? Yes, and the beauty here is I was thinking about doing this podcast for a long time, and you know when Jerry reached out and said that he would love to be a part of it, I'm like, great, we're just I want to start with Scream. He's like, I don't like that, so that's where we are. Yeah, no, I'm excited. Uh, you know, doing this, even though I wasn't a huge fan, uh, you know, I think it's cool to revisit it and give it a fresh shake. I try to do that with any any movie or any series. I didn't care for Scream when I saw it for the first time, but I mean, it would be a lie if I said that I didn't go back and see every single sequel opening night so oh absolutely same here so before we actually talk about the movie scream and everything uh like the background of it and the film itself i kind of want to start by discussing where horror was in the early 90s mm -hmm. um you know by the mid 90s horror had kind of taken a bit of a downturn your major franchises had hit like their commercial and their creative low points Friday the 13th had been put on ice since 1993. 
Uh, Halloween 6 was troubled by production woes, and it really tanked in theaters. Hellraiser and Texas Chainsaw Massacre had become like direct-to-video movies by that point. Really, only your diehards are watching them. There's this new crop of horror movies that's really not tearing it up. So by 1993, you have, like, your highlights are maybe two Stephen King adaptions. You've got The Dark Half, and you've got Needful Things. Both, you know, really mid-to-lower echelon Stephen King movies. Your first Leprechaun film comes out, and I'm sure we'll be covering that at some time. Um, one of your high points creatively, Guillermo del Toro makes his debut with the vampire film, Kronos. Um, 1994, you start to see horror go highbrow. You see movies like Wolf, you see movies like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and Interview with a Vampire. None of these really have your hardcore horror audience in mind. Um, they're what we would probably call now elevated horror, which I think is a phrase that we all cannot stand. <laughs> um, Wes Craven now takes his first stab at meta-horror with A New Nightmare, but again, you know, even though that's maybe your proto-scream, that movie failed to light up the box office. Um... Even John Carpenter, like we might all say that In the Mouth of Madness is brilliant now, but in 1994, it makes less than $9 million on an $8 million budget. The Crow has some horror elements, but it's really, it's a breakout hit, but it's an action film, kind of remembered mostly because it had an awesome soundtrack, and also for the tragic death of its star, uh, Brendan Lee. So that being said, Jerry, like, what is your take on 90s horror as compared to, say, the 80s, which we all kind of love? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, For me, uh, the 90s, uh, there were, like, gems every once in a great while. You know, there really wasn't much of an input, especially in the early 90s. I mean, uh, The Exorcist 3, I mean, that was the perfect start, in my opinion. I mean, I think that's one of the best horror films of all time. You had that, uh, you know... I don't know if you would consider Cape Fear horror, but somewhat of that vibe, you know, that Cape Fear, uh, Demon Knight, which was, I mean, to this day holds up so well. I love that movie with a passion. The Craft. I mean, there there were some good films here and there, but I think there were a lot of uh, horror films that maybe were kind of embarrassed to be called horror films at first. Uh, But and and. Let me say this, though. Even though I'm not a massive fan of Scream, I do appreciate and definitely recognize its importance, uh, not only to the genre, but also bringing so many people into the genre as well. Yes, and I would say for me, like, Scream, when it came out in 1996, wasn't a movie that brought me into the genre, but it brought me back to the genre, in particular, like, new movies that were coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, For me at that point, like, I had kind of stopped going to the movies to see horror movies. There was nothing that was coming out that was really drawing me in. Um, But instead, what you're Mm -hmm. seeing at that point are these movies like, again, Wolf or, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. um, Things that, you know, if they came out today, we would give it the unfortunate moniker of elevated horror, which is a tag that I absolutely Oh, uh, you know, speaking on that, I will agree. And that is that is actually with saying uh, like I'm just going to be honest here. I wrote the Death Wave article for Blumhouse a few years ago. If you remember that, like if there's somebody that got punched for trying to, uh, you know, not champion, but kind of raise the question of if elevated horror or that kind of stuff was a thing. Like, yeah, I, I, I agree. Someone needs to get punched for that. And that's that's even with, you know. I wrote that article that got death threats. So it, 
Jesus, man. Oh, no, it was gnarly. And the whole article was basically just asking people, hey, there's this thing, this phrase, you know, his creator says this, you know, uh, what do you guys think about it? And I interviewed all these people in the horror community and stuff. And for some reason, people thought that I was saying, you know, no, this is the thing, elevated horror and that kind of stuff. And, oh, it got gnarly. It got gnarly. But, I mean, with that being said, I don't think elevated horror is a thing. You know, I, I, I think horror has always been able to tell these great stories metaphorically, you know, visually, that just as good as dramas or thrillers. It's just for some reason, for some reason you get people, you know, like making hereditary and films like that that people are embarrassed to call horror, you know, and and maybe elevated horror works for them. But, I mean, that's definitely not what it is. You know, and to your point, I think that horror can be and should be deemed a lot of times as like really high art and really wonderful. Rightfully so. And there are, you know, a lot of these movies that come out that just do, like you said, do not want to embrace being called a horror movie. So you get these really, you know, ridiculous ridiculous labels like oh it's a psychological thriller um you know i remember like silence of the lambs coming out and winning 10 academy awards and all of a sudden you know it's no longer a horror movie a guy who eats other people's faces trying to help an fbi agent find a guy who skins people how is that not a horror film no absolutely it's just like yeah it's just like an absolutely ridiculous argument and there's this fear that you know if it's not schlock then it can't be called horror so yeah it's just like it's a ridiculous thought and it's a ridiculous fear so, like, one thing I want to do touch on, like, really briefly is the fact that, you know, Scream is not director Wes Craven's first crack at doing, like, kind of a meta horror movie or a movie that looks at the genre and kind of peeks behind the scenes. You see that happen in uh, with A New Nightmare, which, you know, kind of reimagines the Nightmare on Elm Street series, you know, after Freddy's Dead had quote-unquote been the last movie and you know during this movie you know Craven pulls the curtain back a little bit and has a different explanation for why Freddy is like he is and the whole element of fear and you know it's one of those movies where horror movies you know exist in this universe which is something we don't often see um but you know as excited as people are for Freddy Krueger and as much as they they love him and as as kind of like the reputation that movie now has among fans at the time it did not do well uh, i was really discouraging to craven and i just kind of want to get your opinion on why you think um, people weren't ready for that kind of meta horror movie when later on um scream goes on to be just such a massive hit well i i think that they had moved on but at the same time uh and i say this loving that movie with a passion i feel like it was too different for a lot of core horror fans you know they they did want freddy and they were so excited that you know Wes craven was coming back for a freddy film but what they got was somewhat of a existentialist movie you know where Wes craven's asking these ideas about you know horror what it means you know and all this stuff it, it was more it was a more more of a psychology lesson than like the typical Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And while I mean it, it hit all its marks for me, but I mean yeah, I remember that bombing so hard, being bummed out when it did. I think for me, like the reason I have so much trouble warming up to that movie personally is like I just felt like it focused on the wrong human character. Like um, 
I just don't feel that connection to Heather Langenkamp and Nancy as much as I do Robert Englund. And I think that if you do that movie from the perspective of Robert Englund and struggling with, you know, being famous or being Freddy, I just think you would have had like a way more interesting movie overall. Oh, definitely. I mean, it could have went in a direction where, you know, Robert Englund's struggling with the idea that he's Freddy. I mean, you know, I mean, not to inject a random thing that has nothing to do with it, but there was an interview a while back with one of the guys from Slipknot who were, who was saying, like, I'm always going to be known as so-and-so from Slipknot, and that kind of bums me out, you know? Uh, where, I mean, I could see the same thing happening. It would be a really good approach to Robert England. I mean, I'm sure he loves being Freddie, but at the same time, I mean, this guy is such a... Uh, he has such wide variety of talent uh, in other films, you know, where he's not Freddie that gets, you know, criminally underused. You know, I think, too, like, what's important to know, like, Wes Craven, after A New Nightmare, had, I don't want to say soured on doing horror, but he was really looking to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, leave the genre behind, and he um, started to try to do more dramatic work. Yeah, he was doing, like, uh, what was it, what how was it, Music from the Heart or Sound of My Heart or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, right along those lines with Meryl Streep. Exactly, and, and uh, Wes definitely not came around, you know, because I'm, I'm sure he always had the love for genre films. But, I mean, late in his career, I mean, his last few films, you know, gladly played within the horror genre. You know, exactly, and his legacy is going to be that of a uh, man who created not one, but two of the most iconic and enduring um, mm-hmm. figures in horror movie history uh, between Freddy Krueger and A Nightmare on Elm Street and the movie you know we're going to talk about today in, with Ghostface. I mean, that's really, and that's what an incredible legacy to have. And you know what was great about uh, Wes Craven is that, yeah, he did create two horror icons, uh, you know, with Nightmare and with, with Scream, but at the same time, I mean, he tried to do that so many times. He wanted to give fans, I mean, neither of them you know hit their mark with horror fans but shocker or my soul to take that was wes's attempt to do that again and again to give people characters that they could potentially see in other sequels oh exactly and even beyond that you have these movies like um the hills have eyes and last Mm -hmm. house on the left which i cannot watch last house on the left to this day and the hills have eyes which it's a mean and nasty movie, and it's like, geez, where do you go from there when you see Well, you that? could go with uh, dog flashbacks in the, sec- the second one. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to this day, is one of the best ideas in one of the worst movies ever. Like, who would have thought that, walking into that movie, you know, who would have thought they would get an extended uh, flashback from the point of view of the dog from the first movie? <laughs> Yeah, that is one of the craziest things about that movie. Just one of. Um, moving on a little bit, you know, what Scream, one of the things it's best known for when we talk about it is, you know, how it was what we would call a meta horror movie or a movie where, you know, horror movies exist in this universe and people kind of actively mm-hmm. talk about them. Um, but, you know, by and large, it is not, although it's, it's one great. of the more famous examples of this kind of work in the genre and something we still see to this day. It is mm-hmm. not the 
first attempt at a movie like this. You do see some examples of that, say, in the 1980s. Like, what springs to mind is 1985 and Fright Night, where you have, you know, Charlie Brewster, who is up watching horror movies and horror hosts like Peter Vincent, and he gets, you know, to know all the tropes of vampire movies. And then you have a character like, say, Evil Ed, who... um, really knows all his vampire shit overall and he's kind of explaining the rules of like what you need to do to kind of kill a vampire so that's just like one example of um like meta horror like a decade before screen jerry what are some other examples of movies you know where you know even if they're not horror movies where horror movies actually exist in their universe and people kind of get like the rules of them and what they're all about uh in the 80s, there was a, a Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, which isn't a horror movie, but, I mean, as as a huge horror fan as a kid, it was cool to see that character, you know, being super into George Romero and that kind of stuff. But actually, within films, I mean, I you know, Fright Night, obviously. Uh, even more recently, uh, Exeter, the uh, Marcus Nispel movie. I mean, they Googled The Exorcist, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. <laughs> like, you, you don't get very many films that do that. But uh, when it's done right, I think it's really cool. Yeah, that's what I'm going to have to go and check out. Dude, what are some other ones, too? I mean, one thing that's unique about Scream, and I think it's a character that everybody loves, is you have this character of Randy who becomes the audience surrogate. You know, he would be, if this was made today, he would be wearing, like, a Fright Rags T-shirt, and he kind of, like, knows everything about our movies, and he's kind of the stand-in for, you know the um dude in women woman of the crowd who love these movies and i'm just trying to think too like some other characters you would have seen before randy that appeared in horror that you know kind of really love these movies maybe sam and the frog brothers from the lost boys because i mean they they had they had a very vast knowledge Mm -hmm. of of horror not even just films but even comics well that's what's so great about that movie is that they're basically horror fans who think that they know how to combat vampires based on their love for horror and they get in in over their head you know i cannot wait to eventually get to the lost boys because that's one with like one classic movie and the rest of it is utter dreck but i am definitely curious to see just Mm -hmm. like how bad that dreck is going to be well there are some other Mm -hmm. examples here of um meta horror that i had written down okay so one of the ones i had come up with there's a little movie that comes out in 1987 called psychos in love it's more of a horror spoof it's about two serial killers that bond uh, and fall in love over their like mutual interests of killing people and also their absolute hatred of grapes um they constantly reference other slasher movies during the runtime there is this like ultra low budget um take on the shower scene from psycho overall it's just this really hilarious um little spoof of a movie who put that out? So that you can find on Amazon Prime right now. It's uh, Gorman Pichard. Oh my god! Is the guy that put that together? Yeah, it's pretty oh. awesome. Like in a uh, weird Al UHF kind of way. There's a scene where like they're always like breaking the fourth wall. They're referencing slasher movies. There's a scene where they're like knocking oh, man. boom mics out of the way. I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, there's like a scene at the end where like the FX artists are like pumping blood and they're like talking to the FX artists. 
there's also this other like really little scene movie um, called There's Nothing Out There that came out around 1991 and I believe you can find it on YouTube. Uh, was done by Rolf Kaneski when he was around 19 years old. Um, it is a lot like Scream in bits, except it's not a slasher movie. Um, to the point where, like, you have a character that points out all the stupid shit that people do in horror movies and how they're doing it, and it's going to get them killed. Like, sure, we're going to go alone to this cabin in the woods, and, you know, we're going to go wander in the dark. Like, why don't you just cut my head off right now? Um, what's interesting about this is, like, there's a lot of buzz about it when it uh, is playing the festival circuit. It gets picked up, but then gets dumped into theaters, like, during a blizzard over Super Bowl weekend in New York City in two screens, and that's it. Um, Kaneski is going to go on to claim that he showed this movie to Wes Craven's son, and Craven uh, was interested in working on it, but then... Um, as soon as, you know, Craven's kids are, he never hears from Wes at all. And a few years later, uh, Scream comes out and he's like, hmm, this is a little bit weird. It's not something I really buy. So, Jerry, have you seen this one before? I have. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, I just found it really interesting in doing the research uh, for this episode where, you know, there's that accusation like Wes was supposed to work with us and... It never happened, and this looks a lot or feels a lot like my movie does. Well, it seems like any time a movie comes and kind of makes a huge wave, there's always – and I'm not you know, discounting uh, Kaniski or whatever uh, his last name is. But uh, you know, it always seems like somebody's already had that idea. I mean it happened with Scream. It happened with Hereditary. It happened with – I mean basically any, any horror film that comes and makes a huge wave. Oh, yeah, and it's something that we're seeing happen right now Yeah, with, like, the mm-hmm. whole Stranger Things lawsuit, which is now getting, you know, moving forward, which they just announced. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I mean, it's it's one thing if it's basically a remake, kind of like the uh, uh, Carpenter lawsuit a few years ago with, uh, with the uh, Guy Pearce action movie and uh, Escape from New York. I mean, it's, it's one thing if it's basically, you know, you're basically remaking a movie you know, with a different title. Whereas, I mean, I, these days, you know, Scream comes out, everybody has that idea according to them, you know, True Detective, it happened with that. And I mean, like, like you said, with uh, Stranger Things. No, right on that point. All right. So we are about 24 minutes in. So let's actually talk about the movie that we were going to talk about tonight. And let's talk about Scream and how it was developed. So Scream is the brainchild of Kevin Williamson, who also went on to develop Dawson's Creek, a number of other, you know, 2000s slasher movies or late 90s slasher movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer and also penned uh, Halloween H2O based on the success of, you know, the juggernaut that was Scream. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Jerry, what is it that you know or remember about, you know, how he wrote this movie and how it came to be? Because it's it's pretty fascinating to me, like, yeah, you know, how yeah. this whole thing came together and how it came together, like, super, super quickly. So. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I know that he developed the story because uh wasn't like the lights were off or something like that. And he was on the phone with a friend and they were trying to 
go back and forth regarding, you know, trying to use different things. You know, what would Jason do? How would you escape Michael Myers and that kind of stuff? So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's. He basically had given himself, mm -hmm. like, quite the fright. Like, he was watching a documentary on uh, the Gainesville Ripper, uh, Daniel Harold Rowling, a guy who killed, like, eight people in 89 and 90. Uh, and some really fucked up and horrific ways. Well, that's the funnest time to get creative when you're just scared out of your mind and something like that. I mean, your your power's not on. I mean, obviously, the first thing that comes to your head, you know, who's out there? You hear any noise, whether it's, you know, your kids or just a random creak, and then suddenly you're thinking the worst. And I think that really gets the creative wheels going. I mean, he wrote the script in, like, what I think was, like, three days, right? Yeah, it was, like, three days where he penned the whole thing. I mean, that's insane. Like I've I've worked on scripts for months, not being able to break it. I mean, this guy wrote, you know, a movie that a lot of people consider to be a classic in three days. Yeah, he did the script in three days, and along with that, like a five-page treatment for like part two and part three. Uh, and part three looked actually way more interesting than the movie that we actually got. But he put this all together, hoping to kind of sell the whole thing as you know, like franchise potential to you know buyers that might have taken a look at it overall. But it came together like super, super fast. Now, I think most people actually know this, but it's kind of like fun to say that the original title of Scream isn't Scream. It's actually a movie called Scary Movie, which Bob Weinstein decided to change you know, at the very last minute. I remember uh, uh, before the film, I think, actually went into production, uh, I was visiting a friend in, uh, I think, Palmdale. His, his father worked at a production company, so it always bring home all the trades. And they had just announced that Wes Craven was going to direct Scary Movie. So, I mean, throughout the whole production of the movie, you know, when it finally came out, it was Scream. I didn't even realize that that was the same movie. Yeah, and there's this actually, like, really cool moment in uh, one of the documentaries uh, on Scream you can get in the box set. It is called uh, Still Screaming. Oh, God. It's Ryan Turek's film, right? Yeah, yep. He put that whole thing together. Yeah. It is called um, Still Screaming, and it's this kind of look back on um, the Scream films where, like, Rose McGowan holds up a bottle of wine um, from mm -hmm. the rap party, and it says on there, you know, scary movie, like, thanks to the cast and crew from Scary Movie, um, which is really neat because that just shows how long they waited to change the title of the movie. Well, I mean, that's that's definitely the Weinstein approach. Like, I, I spoke with uh, Jeff Burr recently about Stepfather 2, and uh, the Weinsteins bought that movie and decided to go theatrical with it. And after they saw an early screening, uh, one of them, one of the Weinsteins almost tackled Jeff Burr and, you know, said, you know, this is a scary movie. Why is there not blood? And like forced them to shoot so many insert shots. So, I mean, those guys were notorious. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that too, because the same thing happens with um, Scream where, you know, the Weinsteins are looking at the cut of the movie and Bob Weinstein goes, look, there's been like yeah. 30 minutes without a kill. So you need to add a kill to this movie. <laughs> Uh, there's too much time in between death between um, uh, Drew Barrymore's character getting it and getting it to the party. So then you have uh, Henry Winkler's See, character. But I, I think that that decision kind of hinders the film in a lot of ways because if they had kept that kind of getting the viewers used to getting okay again in between kills, you know, you get to know the characters 
And, you know, that's what's great about Friday the 13th, uh, the final chapter. You take Jason out of that movie, it's such a good coming-of-age yeah, movie. Yeah. And uh, and Scream, I think, has that potential at times, but that's one of my issues with it. The Henry Winkler kill, like, it just seems so forced and kind of takes you out of the development of the of the story for me. Yeah, it's definitely an out-of-left-field moment in the context of the movie, especially because... You know, they are kind of building him up to be potentially one of the killers in the movie. And then, you know, he kind of buys it out of like absolutely nowhere at all, which is really, really weird. Well, even that and and even from a motive perspective, I mean, isn't every other kill and scream really planned to exact the revenge on uh, Sydney and, and, and those people? It seems like every other kill is is in line to the final payoff whereas that one it just seems like you know oh let's let's kill the principal i mean yeah his death later in the film you know gets them out of the house but like the kill itself it feels like it was almost pointless yeah no you're absolutely right there right where what you see is like obviously the the death center around Sydney and everyone's connected to her and even the first two kids that buy it in the movie, um, like spoiler alert, you know, Drew Barrymore dies really quick, like um, Casey and Steve died because Casey had dated Stu for like a hot second before um, she dumped him and went out with Steve and that's kind of pointed out in the movie so mm-hmm. you know he's kind of getting his revenge on his ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend um, for dumping him and then obviously later on like Billy and Stu are going after Sydney because Billy wants his revenge mm-hmm. I do want to say though even though I'm not a huge fan of this movie I will happily go on record and say that the opening sequence of this movie I think if made into just a short film by itself would be one of the best short films of all time oh yeah like the 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 writing the tension it's it's great for me uh where the film suffers uh and i don't want to spend this whole podcast trashing you know a lot of people's favorite movies for me when the the film suffers after that opening because that opening is so strong i mean there's so much tension and terror in that opening yeah if that short film came out now like as soon as that came out um williamson would have like a five picture Mm -hmm. deal you know lined up to you know make this actually a feature length or you know to do something new and different like just based on the opening alone like that you're right that would be without a doubt probably one of the greatest like short slasher movies of all time and would you'd go on to find him to go on to do like bigger and better things just kind of like based off of that Mm -hmm. that alone because it is like just an absolutely incredible like gut punch of a start to a movie oh most definitely and uh it gave uh when i I saw it theatrically uh in a little theater behind a mall where it played like a double feature with uh howard stern's private parts (laughs) which is a weird double feature but uh i remember watching it laughing uh at the moment that casey gets the question about friday the 13th wrong because as like a lifelong horror fan you know how many times do you just stay silently you know just stay silent and quiet in line when someone's talking about 
the first Friday the 13th and they mentioned Jason killing people. You know, as a horror fan, that was the moment where I was just like, <laughs> you know, but what's interesting about that too, and I definitely get what you're saying there, but to me, like her getting it wrong was like less about like, you know, kind of being that kind of, you know, gatekeeper in horror and like, oh, this person's like not a real yeah. fan, but it's more about just absolutely like how terrified she is in that moment and she blurts out like what she thinks is the safe answer because like her brain's just not thinking at that point so you're just coming out with the most obvious thing um i thought that's what was like really interesting you know about that scene and how you know they basically like really fuck with her during it because you're right like if you go oh the first friday movie it's jason's mom like jason is the dead kid in the lake that shouldn't exist in any other movie um but, you know, in that moment of just how terrified Casey is, like, she blurts out and it costs her and Steve their life. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, as as a 38-year-old, I could totally see that. But as, as you know, a, a 16-year-old watching the theater, I was just a, I was just an asshole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get, I get that. So, uh, Miramax buys Scream, the script for Scream, and they immediately go to Wes Craven and say, like, we really want you to, like, direct this movie. Um, he turns him down. He's like, you know, at this point, I'm kind of done doing horror, and I kind of want to move on and do some different things. Um, so he tells him no. So they go to other directors. Like, they go to Robert Rodriguez and say, you know, would you like to do it? At one point, they approach uh, Danny Boyle. Um, and he doesn't do it. And they even actually go to uh, Sam Raimi um, to do this movie. And he, you know, gives his spin on it. And Merrimax decides, like, you know what? You're leaning too much into the comic aspect of it. We really want this to be a horror movie that just kind of happens to be funny at points. But not really a straightforward comedy in the vein of, like, an army of darkness or even a... You know a lot of points like a drag me to hell see that's 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 a bummer because at that point sam raimi was kind of writing that thing i mean he was really good at the the horror comedy stuff but i mean if you look back he could also make a very good straight horror film i mean the evil dead the evil dead is one of the best movies of all time and there's very rarely a joke in that first film yeah like it's terrifying. It's it's one of the few films I think that still scares me to this day. The first one. Oh, it's absolutely one of the all time greatest horror movies. Still, like close to forty years later. So after all these guys turn it down, Drew Barrymore actually signs on to star in the movie as Sydney originally. And as soon as that happens, Wes Craven decides, you know what, he would actually really like to do this movie now. He feels like he's got a pretty good star on board. Um, he's like, you know what, let's give this a shot. Um, but right before production is about to begin, Drew Barrymore says, hmm, you know what, rather than star in the movie, I think I want to play the role of the girl who gets killed in the first, you know, 10 minutes. And um, instead of being on the set for like a month for a shoot, I'm going to be on the set for like five days and I am going to still want the same amount of money, of course. Um, 
which Craven is kind of pissed. He almost quits, um, but does decide to stay on. And it actually is kind of a stroke of genius. And I think it would be a much different, and in all honesty, not nearly as good of a film with Drew Barrymore, you know, in the Sydney role for one movie, let alone all four of them that come out. But she's really perfect, and it's a really a great red herring and throws the audience off track and kind of lets them know when she bites it, like, hey, this movie is, you know... Scream is not here to fuck around at this point. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it works. Uh, I mean, tremendously well. Uh, I mean, that and it's such a, a bait and switch. You know, it reminds me of Psycho. You know, you get so invested in Marion Crane. You know, and in the opening, you, going into Scream, you think Casey's the main character. So when that happens, you know, you know that the rules don't apply. You know that nobody's safe. It's kind of a, a fun way to start a movie off. Oh, absolutely. I just love the little details in the movie, too, in that opening scene where you have, like, the jiffy pop on the stove, and basically everything that goes down has to go down, and the amount of time it takes for someone to, like, pop a big bowl of popcorn before they, like, watch a movie. Yeah. No, I, I think the switch from very more wanting to play Sydney uh, to eventually wanting to play Casey, I think it's the most, I mean, I, it's such a good idea. It works so well for the movie. Yeah, you know, Barrymore, you know, dropping out to take the lesser role. It's just like one of the many kind of happy accidents that, you know, happen on this movie. You know, another one is the actual ghost face mask. When Kevin Williamson writes the script, um... You're, he see he writes a description like mass killer and there's really no other instructions mm-hmm. that are on there for it but the crew when they're out staking out film locations they're in this house they're scouting it for the shoot um, and the woman who owns it is like oh you know my husband has his old mask here in a spare bedroom on a post like is this something that you can use and lo and behold it's the scream mask it's the ghost face mask um you know, that has gone on to become, like, this worldwide um, seller. And it's something where, like, Craven didn't want to pay for the right, so he has, like, the guys at K&B try to replicate it and change it just enough so that they're not going to get sued. Um, but they can't quite get it right. Eventually, Craven just says, you know, like, we're going to pay the rights to Fun World and we're going to use the actual mask. Um, because he just thought it was that important for them to do in... You know, not only does that mask, you know, really kind of define the killer of Scream as well as its three sequels, but, you know, it goes on to be one of the top-selling Halloween masks really still to this day. You find kids that are kind of dressed like Ghostface, and they are wearing that Mm -hmm. every single year on Halloween, you know, 20-something years later. Like, people that wore it. 20 years ago when Scream first came out, like now their kids are actually dressing up on Halloween like Ghostface, which to me is really kind of cool. Yeah, I think my kids have owned it at least three or four times just for various various Halloweens, yeah. Oh yeah, I can already tell like right now that's going to be you know, one of my daughter's, you know, Halloween costumes. Like, we watched Scream together. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and she, like, loved it. Like, she thinks Elm Street 3 is her favorite horror movie, but, you know, Scream is now up there, and she's going to want to go as that for, you know, Halloween as Ghost. That's awesome. My daughter, Dahlia, it's her favorite movie of all time, or one of her favorite movies of all time. Uh, I once had a, a piece of art commissioned for a locket, and uh, it was Dahlia's 
two favorite things. One was Ghostface, and the other was like a Slurpee from Seven <laughs> Eleven. Yeah, that's that's super rad, yeah. right there. Yep. You know, another like really interesting thing about Scream is like how it comes out in terms of like when they release it and how it does. Um, Miramax releases it in the middle of Christmas season, like on December twentieth, nineteen ninety six. And it's a time like back before you have like this massive tentpole movie come out every single week. And, you know, back Christmas season, you're getting like Oscar bait. And that's really like that's about it. So, you know, Miramax figures like, look, we got all these like high school kids that are out on break. You got all these college students that are home from school. Like these are our people. These are the people that are going to want to see horror movies. So we're going to put it out then um, and we're going to make a ton of money comes out the first weekend and you know it pulls in like six million now on a 15 million dollar budget if this came out today we would label it a flop um it would be out of theaters in like three weeks and then you know 20 years from now we would be writing retrospectives about how the movie wasn't appreciated by the time and deserved a better fate well back then movies get to play a lot longer and because of that Scream goes on with really good word of mouth to not like just kind of hold what they made or not drop a lot. They actually make more money um, as each week passes. They go from 6 million to 9 million in the second week, from 9 million to 10 million in the third week. Um, and what's really impressive too is not only does the movie make more money the longer it's out each week, but by late april i'm sorry mid-april through late may the movie is still in theaters and it's still making a ton of money um out of the 103 million that it makes in the united states alone 10 percent of that comes um from the gate at like mid-april through like the middle part of may which you know by that time nowadays that movie's not in theaters anymore that movie is you know, on Amazon or on Netflix, and you're not making any more money in theaters. But it was just like way different back then, just how long and how well, like the word of mouth allowed Scream to do and why it got to make so much dough. I think that's what's great about uh, about that era and the eras before that is that back then uh, companies gave films time to develop word of mouth. I mean, if you would based yeah. the success of Halloween off of the first week or two, you know, it wouldn't be a classic. People would have forgotten about it and so on. Halloween became such a juggernaut because of word of mouth and, and Scream did too. Oh, yeah. I mean, by the time, like, Halloween becomes a hit, like, that's not the holiday anymore. Like, holiday for it's, like, by Christmas season is when it's, like, raking mm-hmm. all the dough at that point. Forget about, like, the Halloween season because it just – it got to play forever and people got to see it and they got to see it again and again and again. Okay, so we're going to actually now maybe talk a little bit about why this movie works or, you know, why it doesn't work overall. And of course, I think, you know, being that the movie is 20 something years old, um, we're going to get into spoiler territory. And I think that's something that's going to become fairly obvious early on that, you know, whenever we discuss these movies, we're going to be pretty heavy on spoilers. Okay, so Jerry, here's what I want to know. You, you know, you're up front right away. Like, you tell you know, me right now, like, what is it about Scream? Like, why doesn't this movie work for you? Oh, I feel so bad that this is the first episode that people are going to instantly think I'm just a mean codger. No, uh, see, Scream for me is like this. It's like I said with the opening. I think that's even sitting there 
uh, watching it in the theater, that was the first thing that I thought. It's like, wow, that is such a solid opening, and the rest of it just doesn't live up to it, in my opinion. You have a, a group of kids who, just based on appearance and personality, to me, seem like they wouldn't hang out with each other in real life. Skeet Ulrich, Skeet Ulrich, I mean, when I, when I saw that, Billy and Stu just looked like people that would hate each other, you know, let alone be chums. Tatum and Sydney just always seemed off to me. And my biggest problem with the film is this. It does a good job of being meta, but at the same time, it's just like, why wouldn't I just watch Halloween or the films that it's just its whole existence uh, relies on, you know? that And I, it drives me nuts that what Scream did is spark so many movies where there was that, the set core rules that – so many people that didn't even like horror suddenly would hold everything up to. They'd be like, no, a, mo- a horror movie needs to have this rule because it said it in Scream. You know, a horror movie needs to do this because Scream told me that. And it's just like, like I like the films I like films that, to where you don't really know what you're going to get. And Scream has that here and there, but as a whole, it's just... I mean, that and it started the whole thing where basically every film that came out after that was just a different WB show with a, a slasher put in there. I mean, yeah, but I mean, that's that's why it doesn't work for me. Uh, I mean, it's not as bad as, you know, the third film, which I think is just, oh my God, I can never get on board with a single think piece about appreciating Scream 3 because it will never happen. Oh yeah, we're in agreement there. Like, Scream 3 is pretty putrid and it's going to be really interesting to kind of cover that one together. <laughs> It's just, oh, it's just really bad. Well, I get that a lot. I get that a lot because of some of my opinions. I've had people say that, oh, you're just trying to be different. It's like, no, I just really like The Exorcist 3 more than the original, and I really like Nightmare on Elm Street 4 more than the original. Like, I understand people, I mean, certain films, like, people latch onto them, you know, art is subjective. But with that being said, you know, screw that. Art can never be subjective when it comes to Scream 3. You know, I, I'd i like to hear how why Scream does work for you, actually. Well, for me, like, a big part of it um, is the characters in the movie. Like, I, um, you know, I hear what you're saying about, like, man, wouldn't Stu and Billy kind of hate one another? I never got that impression. I saw these kind of as a group of kids that actually would hang out, that actually enjoyed one another's company um, and liked being around one another. And I think especially as I've gotten older and seen a lot more horror movies, like, what am I biggest complaints with modern horror movies in particular the slasher film is like you hate a lot of the kids in a lot of these movies and like you can't wait for them to die because they're a bunch of fucking pricks and you're like oh there's no reason to root for them and it's like yeah like we watch you know horror movies and slasher movies for the kills and for the gore and for the blood um But, like, you kind of, like, want to feel a little bit bad or you want to root for the characters a little bit. And, like, I felt like Scream gave you a lot of characters to root for between, like, Sydney being a different kind of final girl and, like, Tatum, um, you know, played by Rose um, McGowan, who I just thought was extraordinary in this movie. And, like, Randy is, like, again, like, the stand-in for every single horror movie fan. Like, I really liked spending time with these characters. Um... The other thing, too, with this movie is, like, 
Wes Craven really has a nasty streak, and that really comes out in this movie, um, where compared to a lot of the horror that was going on at the time, like, this is a really bloody movie. I mean, it got sent back um, from the MPAA with an X rating at first, um, based on all the blood and gore and violence in this, and that you weren't seeing that in mainstream horror at the time. So I love that Scream just really just they fucking go for it. Well, that's one of the that's one of the things that, that I think does work for the film. It did just go for broke when it comes to the gore with the violence, and a lot of films that followed its footsteps and tried to be like that were very watered down and sanitized. Whereas, whereas, whereas Scream, I mean, it didn't cut away, you know, even from that opening sequence, like it's balls to the wall as far as violence. Oh, absolutely. And that's like a hallmark of Wes Craven. I mean, you look at movies like Last House on the Left, you look at The Hills Have Eyes, you even look at the um, kills in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And, like, he's just got this, like, really vicious, uh, sadistic streak when it comes to, um, like, the violence that he can bring to the table. And to me, like, Scream was kind of bringing that um, from the get-go in their movies. Like, it was, you know, yeah, there were funny bits, but it's a balls-out, you know, horror movie. It's a slasher movie. I mean, granted, you're not going to get, like, the levels of gore that maybe you're going to see in the 2000s when, you know, films like Cabin Fever and Hostel and, like, the later Saw movies. Like, you're not getting that level of gore overall, but compared to what you were seeing in theaters at the time, like, it's much, much, much stronger. The other thing I really love about this movie um, really is, like, Ghostface themselves. Um, I love the look of the characters overall, but I also love the fact that these guys get the shit kicked out of them throughout the movie in a very real and human way so it's not like your typical Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers which are these kind of just like brute indestructible forces like no like really reminds you like there's a human under these masks which makes I think the killing all the much more brutal and all the much more worse because these guys get the shit kicked out of them like they get beer bottles in the balls. They get, like, knocked over. They get kicked. They get punched. And, like, they're in a lot of physical pain as they're trying, but they're still kind of coming at Sydney and her friends throughout the whole thing. And just to me, that's a really cool thing. It was, and also I think that's uh, another thing that works for it, is you never forget that whoever is under the ghost face mask is a real person because he gets the shit kicked out of him the whole movie. So that adds to the mystery of you wondering who is the person underneath the mask. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that That's one of the things that just to me that really stands out overall. You know, and to me, too, I love that this is a whodunit movie. I love that you're kind of, like, guessing throughout the movie, like, oh, what character is the one doing this? And you have, like, a character like Billy who so obviously seems like the killer that he can't be the killer. And lo and behold, he ends up being that. But I love that you're kind of guessing throughout, like, who is actually doing this right now. Um you know, the other thing, too, is I love Sydney as the final girl because, to me, she's a much different final girl than you're used to seeing. I think she comes to the movie, like, as played by Nev Campbell, a much more fully formed person, and she's someone who's informed by trauma. She's informed by, you know, witnessing the death of her mother and having to testify in court against that, and then, like, literally one year later, still dealing with the traumatic aftereffects of 
you know, having her home violated, having her family ripped apart, and, you know, wrestling with kind of like, as the film goes on, like guilt, like maybe she was wrong about who she fingered in the movie. But to me, like, she's a much more interesting character and a much more interesting quote unquote final girl than you were getting in your, you know, some exceptions aside, of course, but better than like 90 something percent of like the quote unquote final girls you see in these movies. I also I also think that it it approached PTSD like you said uh, in ways that maybe hadn't done very often at the time and to be honest I, I think weren't done as well until last year's Halloween I mean through throughout that series even though I'm not a huge fan of the screen movies throughout that series each film did tackle various forms of one character and all the damage that she had been put through time and time again starting to wear on her and I, I think that's really really awesome. Yeah, I really like that point. And to your point, like Scream is the first time that your slasher movies, they're less about the killer. And, you know, they are much, much more. Mm-hmm. They're about the victim at this point. Because all four Scream movies, they follow Sydney and they follow, you know, Dewey and Gale at that point. They're not about the killer. It doesn't really matter who was under the mask. It's really, you know, all about the growth of these characters. Like Sydney in particular, you see her going from each movie, like how she adapts to that trauma and how she kind of comes out ahead of it overall. Like she's not just a helpless victim. Um,. You know, in any of these movies, like you do see like a real arc to her character. Another thing, too, is I love Billy and Stu as the killers in this movie. I think they're fantastic. And I love, you know, the mm-hmm. whodunit mystery of it all. And it does it in a way and it does their reveal uh, in the last act of the movie where you find out it's not a killer, but it's actually two killers. It does it in a way that doesn't feel cheap. It does it in a way that... Mm-hmm. Um, the reveal makes sense and even though like you know you have this thing well we're not the killers like overall because there's two of them they can say that with honesty and the movie doesn't um cheat you well how many times how many times did billy and Stu kind of give each other looks at certain parts i mean that were like very subtle little hints you know yep there, there's so many of those no absolutely and i love you know Stu will say well i didn't kill anyone last night and it can technically be true like he may not have been the person that actually did the killing blow so he technically isn't the killer yeah. of casey um and i think that's a really but you can see where it's still you know not a cheat and i kind of love trying to figure out like all right who killed who in this movie who is where when in this movie and i i love the reveal as these two guys as your killer yep no it's all word games it's word games and it's manipulation from those two guys yeah. and so i mean i think that's that's great as far as the film character development yeah mm-hmm. The other thing I really love, too, is uh, with the characters mm-hmm. is the difference between the difference in the similarities between like Randy and Billy, where both of them are horror movie fanatics, but how they approach the movies are so much different. Like Randy is just that every person, you know, we all know Randy we, to a certain extent. Anyone listening to this podcast, we all are Randy to a certain extent. We love the movies and we take, you know, quote unquote life lessons from them, but we don't believe them to be real where, you know, Billy only relates to life through the lens of the movies. Like every single thing 
that he does mm-hmm. in these movies and how he relates to the other people around him is through that lens overall. So it's far more insidious and um, he he really doesn't accept reality. Like that's something as I've kind of gone back and, and watched this movie over and over, like it really like started to jump out at me is just how he in a lot of ways thinks his own life is actually a movie where Randy is just a guy that loves horror movies and it's like oh well you know if horror movies are real life this is how he would act where Billy like you know horror movies absolutely are real life well that's the difference that's the difference uh, and I think that, that is, that's another thing that I actually do like about it is that those two characters are perfect examples of various horror fans absolutely there, there's the Randys who are knowledgeable about it you know and they're like walking encyclopedias and it's for a passion and then there's the Billys who kind of inject everything horror into their lives in a way that it just doesn't feel right you know yeah it's disturbing so, I mean, it's it's interesting the kind of, you know, juxtaposition between the two. Yeah, and I think, like, that's one of the things you see where, like, Randy might be like, all right, you know, you know, don't drink, and he's actually getting bombed during the party. Like, Billy actually really believes in all of these rules, and I think, like, one of the fascinating things I kind of think when re-watching this movie for, like, the millionth time is how... Billy is really trying to manipulate um, Sydney, especially when he's trying to sleep with her so he can then kill her. Exactly. It's, it's those rules. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he cannot, you know, go through with murdering her uh, until, like, she actually has sex because then she can no longer be the final girl. It's this really fucked up thing. And at the same time, like, he's just, like, you know, he does not want her. There's, like, a definite queerness to him in that moment when... Sydney eventually, you know, gives in and says, like, we should do it. He has this look in his eye. The camera, like, shows him, like, real close up, and he looks terrified. He doesn't want this. Well, not only that, but he also gives a look of kind of not only being scared but kind of disappointed because she's not playing into that virginal. Yes. You know what I mean? She's not playing into that kind of what is in his mind, you know, this cliche, these tropes. You know, she's she's being uh she's being headstrong you know she's 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 making the decisions and i think that that really threatens him yeah oh that's a really that's a really good point because you know the other thing too is i really absolutely love the relationship between billy and Stu. and the more and more i watch scream like the more and more i really love matthew uh, lillard's portrayal of Stu. yeah you know in these movies i think he's a hoot like i know like especially that last scene of the movie like when they're in his house like a lot of his dialogue is improv and it's funny as shit and again like talk about going for broke like he's just so over the top and so memorable i just like he's one of my favorite Dude, bits of the movie see that's just the craziest thing is that yeah I, i've read a, a lot of people kind of rag on on the character of Stu, and and yeah i mean it's obvious that i'm not the biggest screen fan but matthew lillard to me was always the best part of that movie mm-hmm. i every scene he's in like you can't take your eyes away from him he, no, he, steals he does that in every film uh he did uh i don't know if you're familiar with uh every time i die no uh 
Oh, it's my favorite band of all time. Uh, their vocalist, Keith Buckley, is also a novelist. He he wrote uh, two really good novels, and the latest one's called Watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they shot a trailer just for the novel, and Matthew Lillard starred in it. And even today, that guy is just, I mean, he's just magnetic. Like, you cannot every single time. And I think he did a good job in Scream doing that, too. Oh, he absolutely did. Like, to me, he's one of the m- most fun. Yeah, yeah. He also directed a great indie film called Fat Kid. It's kind of like a somewhat of a spiritual sequel to SLC Punk in a way, isn't it? I have actually never seen SLC Punk. That is like one of those movies that is just like, you know, I, it's on my radar, but like actually never actually watched it. So I probably should at some point. I mean, for me now, when I go back and watch Scream, I look at the performance of Ulrich and Lillard. I see like two characters that are just in love with one another. Well, that ends the 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 whole kitchen back and forth between them and throwing the phone. Like, I think that's some of the, like, those are the guys that I felt had the best chemistry. Mm-hmm. Billy and Stu. Like that whole scene, that whole sequence. Like, it's hilarious, but it's also painful because where Stu realizes that. Oh no! Like we went through it, you know. I'm I'm bleeding. I'm bleeding because you know my friend's stabbing me. We're supposed to do it back and forth, and I think it sits in. It finally sinks in to, with Stu that like, oh no, this is real. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like up to that point, like this is all make believe. Like the blood's not his. The people getting killed, they're not him. And now, like, you know, Billy pretty much got some almost in the kitchen, and he's like bleeding out, and he's in a ton of pain, and he's like frothing at the mouth at that point is like oh shit like we actually did this thing like this is pretty fucked up right now like that is absolutely one of the beautiful bits of the movie like when he comes to that realization where billy is just like a stone cold psychopath like he just doesn't give a fuck and you know he doesn't care who lives or who dies whether it's his girlfriend whether it's his best friend like he just None of this seems to affect yeah. him at all. Like it's a really, really chilling betrayal on the part of Skeet Ulrich. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's again like one of the the things I really love about it. And I see those two characters and like the way like there's that scene where uh, or that moment where Stu was kind of like has his arms over Billy's shoulders and the way he's looking at him like he's totally in love with this character and will do pretty much anything for where Billy doesn't have any feelings for anybody at that point. Um, there's another point, like, right before they stab one another, like, they have their heads on each other, like, their foreheads are touching, and it's just, like, this really queer, uh, cool, kind of, like, queer moment mm-hmm. overall that I don't think um, you were seeing in movies at that point and it was just like it's you know not over the top it's something where if you weren't looking for it or you know weren't looking for it at the time you wouldn't notice it but like it's unmistakable now um mm-hmm. so overall i think all those things like make scream like you know really like great movie to me and i really do believe that it is like one of the most important horror movies of you know the 90s overall well it, it is important uh i mean definitely whether or not i i like it it's it, it's undeniable how much of an impression and how lasting you know it, it's been able to be uh you know it's it sparked the horror genre again in a lot of people's eyes mm-hmm. it brought it back to the forefront mm-hmm. you know to to the point where we were seeing a lot of horror being made after that the only problem is uh, like i said earlier everything that came after that for rest 
the rest of the 90s and even some of the early 2000s was kind of carbon copies of Scream but watered down. You'd get whatever members of a cast from whatever popular show at the time was, mm-hmm. you know, was was on TV that week and would throw them in a movie. It's like Halloween H2O doesn't feel like a Halloween movie to me. It feels like an episode of Dawson's Creek with Michael Myers walking around. Oh, absolutely. I mean – it's 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 that Kevin Williamson approach that kind of went over everything at the time. Like I remember there was a, a casual horror fan friend of mine, and I, I don't say that as like, oh, I was better than him. I just meant like he wasn't really a big fan. And when the trailer for Halloween H two O came out, knowing that it kind of felt like a scream movie, he was like, I wonder who the real Michael Myers is gonna be at the end. <laughs> like like people no, like people like that was kind of the standard, you know, it was like a mystery of who would the person be and there were some gems in there like i love valentine and i'm really excited that it's kind of you know a lot of people are either discovering it more these days or kind of learning to appreciate it but you'd also get films like i know what you did last summer which isn't that bad but at the same time is lacking the things that a lot of people loved about scream like you said the chemistry in scream to you you feel like all those people would hang out i mean i don't uh, they hated each other. Like, I don't know why anyone would want to hang out with Ryan Felipe's character in that movie. He's such a dick. And most of the movies that came after that were like that. I showed my wife uh, Cherry Falls recently, and, and she wasn't a fan at all. And I was asking her why, and she had such a good point. It just feels like, you know, every other TV show at the time. Like, there's nothing really unique about it. I mean, I like that movie, but I could totally see what she means. Yeah, I mean, that is, like, a really, probably one of the things that Scream changed more than anything else is, like, who stars in these movies now. Because you basically have, uh, in Sydney, you have Nev Campbell, who has spent two years on the show Party of Five at the time on Fox TV, which, you know, even though it's, like, not a massive hit, it does about 11 million people a week in its peak. Um, and that is, you know, to kind of put it into perspective, that's like what The Walking Dead did at its best. And that was considered like a massive rating mm-hmm. hit. Uh, Courtney Cox is also like two years in the Friends and she wants to, you know, take this role because, you know, she wants to play a bitchy character at this point. So, you know, all of a sudden yeah. you have like one scream hits big. It's like, great, we're going to go to the WB network and Kevin Williamson, who you know, wrote Scream, you know, he's, and he's wrote, I know what you did last summer. He's bringing in, you know, Joshua Jackson for Scream 2. He's bringing in Michelle Williams for uh, H2O. Katie Holmes uh, plays in Teaching Mrs. Tingle. You see Sarah Michelle Geller, who, you know, was Buffy at the time in Scream 2. And I know what you did last summer before she would eventually go on to um, star in the garage. And you have Jennifer Love Hewitt, also a party of five. And I know what you did last summer. But to your point, unlike the slasher movies of the 80s, like I don't want to spend a lot of time with these kids. I don't like them. They're not nearly as memorable in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. I mean, the the final chapter, the Friday the 13th movie, like I said, uh, you take Jason out of that movie, I would watch a whole movie just on those kids, especially like... like just Crispin Glover oh, alone. The, the back and forth between him and uh, Lawrence Monison's characters in that movie, like... It's so much fun to watch. Or, or Tommy Jarvis was, I mean, I was Tommy Jarvis when I was a little kid. You know, like that that was us. That was horror fans. So watching those movies, you love those people. Whereas a lot of the movies in the 90s, I didn't care if any of them died. I just wanted Josh Hartnett to comb his hair. Yeah, I mean, not only do you not care if they die, but you are actively rooting for characters in these movies to get killed. Yeah. 
you know, and that's, to me, that's not a good thing. Like, I, as a fan, I want to identify with the characters. You know, I don't want to actively root for them to meet a bloody end on screen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely. So that's kind of how I felt overall about, you know, what was going on. That's right. It was a huge trend at the time. Oh, no, I, I just, I agreed. I just said, yeah, definitely. You know, another thing, now that you get all these, like, really famous TV characters playing in these roles, like, you know, you, you as much as I love the 80s slashers, a part of what you love about them is like you didn't have a lot of people that went on to bigger, Betty things. You have like your Amy Steeles, your Felicia Roses, your Thaw Matthews that we really remember fondly, but we remember them for these roles. Now, you would have people that would break out. You would have your Patricia Arquette from Elm Street 3, obviously Jamie Lee Curtis from Halloween, and Johnny Depp from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, you even see people like Jason Alexander, a young George Costanza, turn up in The Burning, a very handsome Jason Alexander. There are so many, so many people in that movie. I mean, Holly Hunter, Fisher Stevens. Like, The Burning is just a classic example of, of really great actors before they blew up. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So you do see some people, but they're, you know, they're not best known for these these slasher movies. And now what you're seeing in these these you know, characters that are, like, really well-known for their roles in TV, and you're right, like, they're, like, these really beautiful people that are getting kind of, like, thrown into uh, these movies because, like, they make a ton of money. What Scream does do is it does give you another kind of boom period for slasher movies, say, between 1997 and 2002. You Obviously, in that time period, you have the two Scream sequels, you have I Know What You Did Last Summer, and I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. you got movies like Idle Hands, Valentine, which you mentioned. You know, Halloween comes back with H2O. The Final Destination movies, which are basically a slasher movie without a slasher killer. You get Jason X or Jason in Space, which I fucking love. Um, you know, and then you get movies like Urban Legend. Like, do you remember? Like, I went back and watched that recently like do you remember that movie in any way shape or form you know that is one of those slasher period you know late slashers that is an absolute fucking it's not good oh you know see i i hadn't seen it since since the opening night in theaters and i didn't remember much about it and then scream factory put out this new release and everyone on twitter was talking about how great it was so i revisited it Man, it was a chore to get through Urban Legend. Like, I was just not a fan. And all the blatant little in-jokes that led to, like, you know, Joshua Jackson turning on his radio and, like, the theme for Dawson's Creek plays. Like, all those little things just made me want to throw that disc against the wall. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. You know, and while I think that it might not necessarily be fair to judge you know, scream by the movies that kind of came after it, just like, you know, the movie like Paranormal Activity, you have all these mm-hmm. footage movies after the fact. Um, there is this thing now. Yeah, that definitely. Slasher movies that just make it, um, there's they like a sameness to all of them. There's this thing where there's not a lot of originality and... Um, to be quite frank, like they're nowhere near as good as the slasher movies that we kind of know and love from like the 1980s. Well, they... They, they just feel like the same movie, just, I mean, with interchangeable WB stars. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The other interesting thing now, too, is now that you have, like, actresses like Nev Campbell and Sarah Michelle Gellar, 
that are starring in these and they're on TV every week. Like you see like nudity go away from slasher movies. Like it's no longer there. Oh, it's completely watered down. And I don't mean that to sound like, you know, some horny teenager because I mean that stuff never really like I never cared about that stuff. But when it's when it's such a, a shift in the kind of slasher movies that you're used to, it's noticeable. So all of a sudden, you know, sex and nudity, which have been a big part of the slasher movies forever, is kind of gone because of this new wave of actors in it. And it's like, you know, think of all the reasons that you used to, like, go and get a Friday the 13th movie. Part 5. Yeah, like that in particular. Part 5. You know, all of a sudden, like, a big part of the skeezy factor for, you know, really kind of embracing and loving these slasher movies, especially, man, Friday the 13th Part 5 is, like, such a really good example Uh. of that. It's so cruel, and it was directed by, you know, Danny Steinman. Like, yeah, I mean, he started in porn. Yep, he did, and even Wes Craven back in the 70s, he did. Yeah, that is true. As well, you know, but back then, you know, porn was considered a lot classier, and you would actually have people take, you know, dates to adult cinema, where by the 80s and by Friday the 13th Part 5, it was definitely, you know, leaning way heavier into exploitation and that. You know, when you look at these slasher movies from the late 90s to the early 2000s, like, that factor is gone. And it's really, like, it's glossed over. Like, the sex is really kind of glossed over at this point because, to be frank, you have the internet and you don't necessarily need um, slasher movies to see boobs anymore. Well, that and. I mean, we live in a time where, I mean, so much has changed as far as uh, what people find acceptable, Uh, whereas I I feel like a lot of movies that we all grew up uh, loving in the 80s maybe couldn't be made these days because of the humor, the approach. I mean, as a kid, I loved it, but I mean, I watched Porky's last year and I was just like, ouch, like, yikes, that movie, there's no way that movie could be released today. And I think a lot of the slasher movies, they run the risk of coming off misogynistic when they have that approach these days. So in some in some ways, the Scream era, I mean, yeah, on, on one end, they didn't do it because they didn't want to get fired from the shows. But I mean, I also think maybe that was kind of a good thing at times. You know, to maybe maybe force the uh, the the writers of the respective films, you know, like to think of ways outside of the box where it wouldn't be just a shower scene. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, and I would say too, like you're seeing these performers now that maybe have a little bit more power, they have a little bit more of a steady gig, and they don't necessarily have to give in to every single uh, demand that a director is going to put on them. Overall, so yeah, they have the ability at that point to say no, like. You know, if they aren't comfortable with getting nude, then they don't have to. And again, um, do the films suffer for it? Like, I don't necessarily, I don't think they do because, you know, maybe, like you said before, by the age we're at when these movies are coming out, like, there's plenty of other options that I don't necessarily, you know, need or think it adds anything to the movie at all. Like, there just doesn't bring anything new to the table. And, you know, I think one thing you don't want is you don't want to see a performer that is exploited or coerced against, uh, especially her will. Well, I think that if the film warrants that and the actress or actor uh, doing that is comfortable with it, that's one thing. But at the same time, stuff like what you're saying or like, you know, what Verhoeven did to Sharon Stone, you know, didn't tell her that that would be showing when she, you know, crossed her legs. Mm -hmm. Like, that's 
kind of exploitative. I mean, even in the first, even in the first Evil Dead, I mean, the actress was really shocked watching that scene on the big screen where she was raped by the tree. Yep. You know, like I, I think that that stuff does have a place. Not tree rape, but uh, you know, nudity. It has a place in films where it's warranted, but at the same time, you you always have to be careful about it not being exploitative. Okay, if there is one thing that Scream is guilty of, it is ushering in a period of the absolute most lazy movie posters. Um, you know, instead of having this like awesome like cover art and poster art that would really draw you in to maybe check out a movie that you wouldn't have seen otherwise, basically what Scream ushers in, and we still suffer for it Definitely. from this day, is like... You basically have like a black background and then like these floating heads of the actors and actresses that appear in the movie. And it's kind of like, you know, here's a bunch of people you like. Just go ahead and watch the fucking movie as opposed to putting any effort in to uh, the movie poster, which really sucks. Oh, my Lord. That is my biggest issue with that whole era. I grew up in the 80s. You know, like I'm almost 40 now. Like it was such a huge part of my life going to the video store and box art was such a huge thing. I mean, that's how I fell in love with full moon movies. The artwork was better than the actual movies to this day. Like, like box art is so important to me and posters, posters are so important. And that whole era of the scream era. Oh my God. I cannot complain about it enough. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget there's a time, like, part of why we love horror so much is you would go in and fall in love with box art and you fall uh, in love with horror. That's the reason I did. I mean, that or, I mean, even movies that weren't anything like their art. I stayed away from watching Vamp for a good 10 years after it was released because I thought it would be absolutely terrifying. You know, like, Ken Russell's Gothic to this day is one of the scariest posters ever. Oh, with the little you know, dwarfy dude. Yeah, it's terrifying. Like, all those things. I mean, the the cover of, of uh, Lustig's Relentless. Mm-hmm. Like, artwork and posters were so cool in the 80s. And a lot of... Uh, I mean, it was a real, real art form back then. Exactly. I mean, you got lazy ones then, too. I mean, Friday the 13th 5, I think, is one of the laziest posters in the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, like the Scream era, it's like, okay, well, there's a bunch of people standing there. Most of them don't even look like they do in the movie. Like, I don't remember Skeet Orch having a goatee and Scream. Uh, like, it, it was just, I mean, poster artists must have just cringed during that entire era. And it made it, uh, I know, just speaking just from my personal experience, it made it hard to discover good movies within that era. I would go to Blockbuster or whatever local video stores were around uh you know, my city. And I would just see the same looking cover. And there were good movies that kind of had similar covers to that. Like I didn't watch Valentine for a while because I mean, that cover was kind of the same exact thing. Whereas the movie itself was really different in my opinion. Yeah. Valentine is one I need to go back and revisit. I haven't seen that since opening night. And I really like David Boreanaz. The, the new, uh, the new Blu-ray from screen factory is just a great, so many great supplemental things in that one. Yeah, I think on that note, we've pretty much covered everything that 
you know, I think we wanted to cover about the first Scream movie, you know, where yeah, uh, its legacy is in horror history, um, kind of both with the good and the bad. I think, you know, we both kind of have made our cases about why we, you know, really enjoy the movie or in your case, like really don't like the movie very much at all. And I, I feel pretty good. I think we can put our discussion on Scream 1 to bed, but, you know, as stated mm-hmm. with the purpose of this podcast, in next episode, we're going to cover part two and three before uh, we have a third episode on just part uh, number four. Uh, you know, I, I think we've uh, approached and addressed most of the things having to do with this movie. Uh, I am I am kind of scared, though, because uh, out of all of them, I think I like the first movie uh, the most, which says a lot because I'm not a massive fan. So uh, I'm kind of scared when we get to the episode for uh, part three. Oh, there will not be very many good things <laughs> said about part three. Um, yeah, I find that one really a chore to get through. And I know that like a lot of people really love uh, Parker Posey uh, in that movie, but man, whatever she is doing in that movie, like I am not buying it whatsoever. I think there'll be some like really interesting behind the scene things to talk about with that movie. Um, in particular, what Kevin Williamson had originally envisioned with his uh, draft when he did uh, the little outline for it and due to like the circumstances of the time, like what actually came out and became of that movie, which was much, much different. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting too to talk about scream Two because that is one of the first movies the internet really messed with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happened with the script and everything else. And it also has some of my favorite horror sequences, which I mean, that's, that's weird. I know that, uh, I can say that about movies that I'm not particularly fond of, but I mean, I think some of the best horror sequences of all time are in Scream 2. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody who has downloaded and listened to this uh, episode, Mm -hmm. our first episode of The Pod and the Pendulum, where, again, we are going to be taking deep, deep dives into all Mm -hmm. of your favorite horror movie franchises. So feel free to get a hold of us. Which you can now do. You can send us an email over at podandthependulum at gmail.com. Podandthependulum at gmail.com. Yeah. You can also now get a hold of us over at Twitter. Uh, we are podandpendulum over at Twitter. P-O-D-A-N-D-P-E-N-D. Oh, crap. I can't spell. U-L-U-M. So the other thing, we're probably going to set up a Google Voice, I think, as well. But, you know, if you want to take part in the show, like, by all means, like, let us know what franchises you want covered and whether or not you want to take a part in it, man. We want this to be really interactive. So I, you know, I think we both want to see, like, creators come on board. You know, filmmakers, artists, other bloggers, other podcasters. Come on board and, like, board and, like let's just... Talk a bunch of shit about some horror movies we love together. I think, you know, the community aspect to me is what I love the most about horror movies. I mean, I've made probably some of my best friends in the whole world over horror movies, punk rock, and professional wrestling. So those are the three things nearest and dearest to my heart besides, you know, my kid, my wife, and my pets. So we're hoping that you guys are going to love this. We're hoping that you guys are going to get excited. Um, I have been really wanted to do this uh, for a real long time and have now finally have a chance to like sit down and make it happen so we hope this was worth it we hope you liked our discussion on scream and i think you know to be quite honest it's only going to get better from here 
Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm very excited about this. And uh, yeah, uh, like Mike said, uh, definitely get involved. I think the the funnest podcasts to listen to are the ones where people you know come and go in a good way and like guests, like really good guests. Actually, uh, the, that these movies mean a lot to them. So I'm stoked. As am I. As am I. So you know, we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Feel free to please. What could really help us out, especially in these early days. Leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Six of them was in the Tokyo Dome, but five-star review on iTunes. That'll help a lot more people find us. Until next time, folks, you know, we are the podcast that is not afraid to ask, what's your favorite scary movie?